If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, as always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined by Neil Timmons. Neil is the CEO of the Legacy Impact Partners. Neil, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Sterling, for having me. I appreciate you having me here. Awesome. Well, I really look forward to uh, getting to know a little bit more about your story and and sharing it with some of our listeners. Can you start off by kind of telling us your background, how you got into real estate, what you did before it, and uh, what you're doing today? Yep, absolutely. So back in 2003-ish, 4-ish, well, both years, I was a banker. My mom had uh, had gotten to the point where all the kids were out of the house. It was time to go do something. And she, her and I were talking. She said, well, what do you think I should do? I said, you know what? You'd make a great realtor. And she thought about it for like 10 seconds. And she was like, you know what? I'm going to do that. So that's what she did. She went and became a realtor. We're having a conversation like a year later. I'm still at Wells Fargo as a, as a personal banker. And uh, she she's outlining what 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 she's done for the year, and she made twice as much as I did. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what in the world? Um, so that was it for me. I was like, okay, well, if she can do that, I can do better. You tell I've got I've got three brothers. But come on, I, I grew up in a very competitive household. Hey, I'm the and, I'm the baby of of two older brothers. Okay, all played sports, and my yeah. dad was also very sports. So, so the 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 uber competitive nature yeah, that yeah. I, I feel you there. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my, that was my entry point into the industry 2004 as a realtor. Okay, cool. And, um, how was that as a realtor? Uh, it was, I mean, I enjoyed it. it. You know, there's a whole bunch of things and you can imagine all of us have experienced this, whether it's in work or some other place, you ever go to a place and you're like, wow, this is like home. This is, this just fits whatever it is, maybe a school, maybe a restaurant, maybe anything. Right. Sure. And that's how it felt is going, you know, it just felt like home. I mean, literally the first, the first week I was like, this is, this is like the greatest thing ever felt yeah. so good. Yeah. Nice. So, so how did you transition, um, from being a realtor to being a real estate investor? Good question. So I, had, I found a, a lot of success in, in the industry as a realtor. When I was 29 years old, I became the number one REMAX agent in the state of Iowa. And so fast forward, you know, a year or two of half past that, you know, obviously that means I was producing some dollars and cents. I got to a point where I was going, I need to employ these dollars. So sure. what should I do? I, I had fixed and flipped a few here and there, like that 2009, 10, 11, 12 era, 13, somewhere in that range. Just as I see something, I go, oh, okay, cool. Let's, I'll, I'll buy that. And let's just, let's, let's, let's flip it. But I never kept anything until five years ago. So 2017 was the first year I decided to keep anything. So that's, that's what I did. I just picked one up. I was like, you know what, let's just try it. And that's what I did. And I was like, you know what, this is kind of, I mean, I bought a quality asset, a house. And I was like, this is kind of easy. So let's do another one. I was like, this is kind of easy. So let's just start doing some more. And as long as I kept buying quality, you know, for me, that meant solid B class rental properties, good areas, good rents, good tenants. It was, it was, I want to say easy. You know, I put that in context. It's relatively easy, right? About that. Um, So that just led to one thing after another, 
and I was going, you know what, let's, let me morph my business out of being a realtor and into being an investor. Cause I'm, I'm tired of trading dollars, you know, time for dollars. Sure. And so that's what created a greater focus in terms of investing. We still do a lot of single families today in flipping our, our taxes are a little, and depending where your audience is, they may, they may appreciate this. Our taxes, property taxes are, are, are super wonky. We've got about 13 or 14 suburbs here. Everybody, every municipality has its own tax, um, you know, millage rate. And so some areas, I mean, I'd have to leave 50% loan to value in place to get it to cash flow to, to make any sense. And, and most times I'm not willing to leave that, that level of money in it. So that's why we end up flipping and just keeping the ones that, that make sense. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. You said you started with a few flips and then decided to keep them. I hear that story a lot. I yeah. did the opposite for, oh, okay. for whatever reason I bought like 70 rentals and my, like my motto from like day one was to never sell. And then as we kind of came up towards the end of last year, I realized like I could make a lot of money if I sold some. Yes, correct. And so, so I built my rental portfolio before I, I ever even considered flipping. And now everything Great. I buy, I want to flip, <laughs> you know, I just want to <laughs> flip it and move the money into apartments. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're, you're strategically doing that, rolling them up into, you know, you, what it sounds like is you've identified an asset that you can make money on, but don't, don't want to hold you. Your money wants to go into a, a different bucket, a forever bucket. That doesn't, it's not the same asset. Sure. And, and I'm not selling my, my first rentals that I acquired. What I'm doing sure. is I'm, I'm finding houses now that yeah. probably don't make sense from a cash flow standpoint, That's right. point, but there's a ton of equity and, yep. and, and, and I don't feel like I'm violating my principles of never sell because like, I'm not selling. I'm just moving the money to another real estate. I'm not like cashing right. out and going buying a Lamborghini. I'm going that's and like right. moving it to another real that's estate right. asset that's yep. still growing and appreciate. So I feel, I feel good. About no. That. So I've got a similar methodology to you. It's either we, we keep the single families that, that do budget that do make sense that you'd want to keep. Otherwise I roll up in, into commercial real estate and acquire commercial real estate for cash flowing purposes. So I, I want to get into that because I have yeah. a ton of questions about the commercial, but before we do, how were, how are you buying um, all of your single family houses? So like your rentals that you did keep, mm -hmm. like, were you putting down payments down or were you doing what we call the Burr method? Were you buying like distressed properties, fixing them up in there? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So how do I end up financing the properties in which I do portfolio? That's a question. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Good question. I've got a really good lending relationships with multiple people. So what I typically end up doing is, is one of two things. If it's a, if it's a light remodel, I'll go literally go out and finance, I finance hundred percent of the purchase price from a local bank, either on a five or 10 year arm fixed rate for five or 10 years with a 15 or 20 or 25 year am just depends on the asset and how aggressive I want to get on the pay down schedule. And if it's a light one, I'll go in and do a remodel and that's it. Uh, the money, the money on the remodel comes out of my pocket. Mm -hmm. If it's a heavier remodel, I'll do the exact same thing. Or in some cases we'll pay cash. I'll go in remodel at 10 at it and go back to the lender and then pull to the burr, pull all my money out. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, like a lot of people, I think, you know, when you, when you end up getting, I've maxed out my max loans from Fannie Freddie. Right. So I'm at 10, all I the 30 years. Oh, well, the 30 year fixed rate has been, you know, is great when I'm at three and a quarter or, or three and a half plus or minus on, on a 30 year fixed. Um, and I maxed all those out early on. That's where I started. 
So I started with that same, you know, like when I started, I remember my first couple of single family houses, like I went and put like 15% down and did yeah. the Fannie Freddie yeah. and, and I was getting like a 6.1% interest rate because for yeah. investor property, investment right. properties. And then somewhere along the line, a couple of years in, I just, I started dealing, first of all, I started dealing with commercial banks with those, you know, 20 year and five year balloon products, yep. you know, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I stumbled across these like private hard money national lenders that were doing 30 year fix at like three and three quarters or 4.25. I'm like, well, I'm not going to go get an enema from Fannie Mae when, you know, these asset based lenders aren't even asking to see my damn tax return. Correct. Yes. So I just never went back. Although I will say, um, we've had a rough week, you know, I don't know when this is going to air, but you know, as of April 21st, the interest rates are soaring and yep. my, my, you know, my asset based lenders are talking crazy and wanting 8% Cor- and all correct. This. So I might revisit that. Um, well, you know, I, you're spot on. It's tremendous heavy lifting to be able to get that, the Fannie in place. I end up with the same difference, a different banker. Um, I go to the same gal, she knows all my stuff. They use the same underwriter internally. Um, so they know my tax returns, which can get complicated. So I'm in communication with her. So I just maxed my stuff out last year when I started, when I shuffled around some refinance stuff. And so I just was in touch with her to go, all right, this is what it's going to look like. What are you going to need? And just try to knock it all out in a single year. Yeah. So what do you, this is a question that, and, and I, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the show is always just me asking questions. I want to know the answer to, yeah, yeah. but you know, I have bought all these, these cash flow and rental properties and, yeah. and, and we really don't know like how much they're making, right. We can do like a pro forma and, and you can like budget a certain amount for CapEx, but, but realistically like to, to get a, a solid handle on it, you got to look back on a couple years of data and we're just, you know, we're really never there. So yeah. I mean, this, this early in the game. So my, my question is how, what makes a property cash flow for you? How do you compute that? And, um, you know, what is your criteria for, for wanting? So what I'll tell you what I do and you can, and this is the kind of the answer I'm looking for. So off the bottom, I take principal taxes, insurance and, um, principal taxes, and insurance. Yeah. And then off the top, I take 20% for property management, vacancy and repair. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I'd like, you know, a couple hundred dollars in the middle, right? I, I, I I'll take a hundred if, um, I got a, a good amount of equity in the, the project, right. Yep. But if, if there's not a good amount of equity or it's in a rougher area where it's not really probably going to appreciate, I, I want that. I want a little bit more, you know, cash flow. Yep. How do you look at, how do you approach that conversation? So, Great question. So very similar analysis, right? You got to take out PITI. So I'm running that budget and then taking out for budgeting for management and expenses associated with the property. I put a line item in there, you know, depending on the age of the house, if the house is only, every property is a little different. So I've got to run a budget a little different. If the house is, let's say it's 30 years old versus the house that's 60 years old, I that 60 year old house could end up with a bigger line item for ongoing management or maintenance that is. And then it also depends on how much we've touched it. So if we buy in and go in and do a, we don't, we don't ever do a full gut, but we do a significant remodel. 
-hmm. you know, I can, I can skinny that up because I know we touched about everything associated with that, with that house versus, you know, where we're, where it's a cosmetic remodel. I know mm, something's going to go wrong sooner or later. There's going to be odds and ends that just add up. And I'm with you though. So when I run the numbers, I'm looking for a house to cash flow at a, at, at a hundred percent loan to value. And I got to make at least $200 a month. Okay. And what it's, what, it's that makes it, that makes it tight for the ability to, to do it, to sit in that bucket. Um, that doesn't mean it, that doesn't mean I don't ever put money into the thing or leave money in the thing. It just means I'm looking for this thing for it to, for it to make sense. Sometimes, you know, on a, on a 70 year old product, that's, you know, my market's called a hundred grand, my rent for a thousand bucks a month. I'm going to end up in a commercial loan there with a 20 year AM plus or minus versus some of the, some of the better stuff I've acquired over a period of time, or it's a, it's a nicer area. It's a newer area. It's more money, but I'm going to end up on a 30 year fixed rate. Cause I, I was strategic about how I put those things into place that obviously dramatically impacts your, the computation as you go there. Cause the PIT IPM, one of the, one of the line items, if not the most significant line item in, in the equation. What is your, um, I know you said it's a range, but like, mm -hmm. what do you typically, what does that line item generally look like if you combine vacancy management and, and repairs? So vacancy, I typically budget at 5%. Uh, management, typically 7%. Repairs, it varies. So I'll give you that one. It's about $800 to $2,000 per house per year. Okay. Some so of the houses, some, some of the houses are, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 2000 square, 2000 square feet. It doesn't take long to spend, to spend sure. some money there. Right. So, so around the 20%. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think you're fair. Cause I'm, I was at five and seven. So you're at 12 there. And then you're, if you're talking, you're talking 8% on the thing and yeah. you've got, you know, you're hitting 15 to $20,000 a year in, in gross rents, 12 to 20,000 bucks, somewhere in that kind of range. Nice. You're at, you're at a thousand to, to 2000 pretty makes, quick. That always makes me feel better. I always yeah. wonder if I'm not being conservative enough. So I always ask guests that have a similar yeah type yeah. of approach to their portfolio, how they do that. Uh, let's tell me about your, your commercial stuff. How, uh, how did you make that transition? What does that look like? Uh, what kind of products are you buying? How are yeah. you buying them? Yeah. So much like how I got into keeping single family rentals, I was going, well, I've got some money needs to get placed. Where do I go? And how do I do it? And that was ultimately led me to, to that path. Similar thing occurred where I was going, well, I've got money and we got rentals, but now at some point you can, it's, it's only so efficient, which means not efficient at all to try to buy a bunch of rental properties. It's not so easy. Yeah. You know, if you, if you want to go buy 10 this month, it's way easier to just buy one commercial property. Right. Sure. And so that's what led me down that path of buying commercial property that, and then the, we already know this, I think collectively in, in real estate, the, the tax benefits are tremendous for all of us in real estate, especially as real estate professionals. And so the, the, the timing of that relative to going, well, I can write off a whole bunch of stuff, utilizing cost segs and in commercial real estate is awfully attractive. So that's what led me down that path. My first entry point was a, was a warehouse, triple net deal, um, tenant occupied, very long-term lease in place. And then that led me to you know, a, a retail piece was the second one that I, that I acquired. 
in fact, that was about two and a half years ago. We, are, we just went under contract uh, on a resale of that about eight or nine days ago. So we'll see how that wraps up here if they get through due diligence and finance and whatnot here in the next 60 days. So more retail and industrial picked up um, a really sweetheart office deal in December, um, which, was a, which was a great one. And the benefit of that for us has been, you know, through half a dozen assets, I've been able to out earn from a passive income standpoint, my, you know, my single family portfolio, which take me five years to put together of nearly 50 units, plus or minus about 45 units. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's become more efficient and it's just a lot easier to put it together for us. So internally we're moving any much more focused avenue to acquire more commercial assets and, and bring on investors at some point when it makes sense. To date, we've never taken a dollar from, from any outside investor. So how does, so how, how are you buying them and financing the commercial buildings? What does that look like? Like how much are you putting down? Like what percentages are you putting down? What, what type of amortizations are you getting on that yeah. debt? What type of in, how yep. do the interest rates relate? Yeah. So I'll, I'm going to paint, I'll, I'll answer that and just kind of go through a couple of assets. And then why don't I tell you a story? Cause this, this will be a fun one for, for you and the audience. I think the most recent one we just closed on. Um, typically I'm trying to lock in, you know, commercial rates as long as I can. So you'll typically find me, I'm at 10 years on a fixed rate on, on everything because, I, you know, although I could, offset and you, know, you can take a little lower rate in a five-year, I don't want the risk associated with a five-year rate. And you already see this, what we're experiencing today, right? I mean, the 10-year treasury has doubled from December to today. And mm -hmm. so it's dramatically impacting rates. I don't want to ever find myself at a point where I'm going, oh no, it's time to refinance. And, and, and I, I don't have a lot of lead time. And all of a sudden the rates are doing just like what you said today. Um, guys want, it, it's very different than what it was three, four months ago. And so I want to allow myself a longer lead time. Uh, amortization schedule, typically 25 year. I've done some things at uh, 20 years. I have one, the one that we're under contract to resell at this time. When I did the refinance about a year ago, I put it on a seven year fixed rate with a 15 year amortization. I knew we weren't going to knock it out. No, it wasn't going to hold it for for seven years. So I just, I, I got a little more aggressive on it. And that as a, consequently, the rate got lower. Mm -hmm. We've got a dollar tree in the portfolio. Um, the benefit of having publicly traded, you know, uh, credit tenants is that you're able to negotiate a lower rate because you're, you're, I'm dealing with the, my tenant is a publicly traded company. They're a credit tenant. It's not like, not like any other property that we have, right? An apartment or, or, or somebody who's there or a local credit tenant as a national credit tenant. And um, so as a result of that, that was a, from a banker standpoint, they absolutely love that deal. So that was an easy one to put in place. Um, down payments, you asked about that. Typically 20%, trying to think if we've done anything with 25. Um, typically 20%, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you two stories. I bought the retail piece, which we're reselling I bought that at the end, like two and a half years ago. It was the end of the year. It was December. Both I and the seller, you know, wanted to get this thing done in the calendar year, but we were too late for me to go get a loan because of the time frame associated with coming to a, 
you know, essentially a handshake agreement the first week of December. I'm going, there's no way I'm going to get this in close from a loan standpoint in December. So I bought it from them on contract. Uh, I want to say it was a 60 or 90 day contract, knowing that I'll have it refinanced out in the, in the 60 or 90 days. So I put 10% down on the thing and agreed to refinance it in, in 60 days. Went to my lender, did the whole thing, appraised the whole thing. And that thing appraised for about, let's say 10 or 15% higher. I don't recall it exactly, but at least 10% higher than what I was paying for it. So nice. I didn't put down anything else. All I put down was 10%. Nice. Now I've got one, the, the most recent one we just closed on this December. So just a few months ago, it was a, a multi a multi-pack package deal. So what I mean by that, it was it ended up being three different medical offices, three different locations here in central Iowa. And it was a non-uniform portfolio. So total portfolio, and I'm rounding here, so bear with me, that was about nine and a half million. One of the assets though, in that nine and a half million total of the three assets was, was like 7.9 million. Mm-hmm. So overwhelming is the lion's share value of the, of the whole portfolio. So what I ended up doing was making an offer on the entire portfolio. This thing was a, this was public. So it was listed by a broker, came public. Multiple people made offers on pieces of the portfolio, but the seller did not want to sell it that way. They wanted to sell the portfolio as a whole. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up doing is making an offer on the whole portfolio, get it under contract, and then the large, the, the monster, the $7.9 million value associated with that portfolio. What I ended up doing was wholesaling that off. I was able to connect with a, another broker here in town who had a buyer who just wanted that one piece. I wholesaled that piece off. I retained the other two offices. So that put me at about, let's call it a million six, 1.6 million to purchase the two other offices. When we went to close and do all the lending, it appraised at 2.5. So I'm under contract at one six It appraised at 2.5. I went to closing and it ended up being as a result of that with my relationship with my lender, a no money down deal. I did not put a penny down into the property. And I put that on a 20 year AM, which was, which was my two. He would have let me do either one. I just wanted to get a little more rest with the AM schedule on a 10 year fixed rate. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So what's, uh, what's next for you? Next for us, um, our bread and butter here is literally single family homes. Just that's, that's kind of just as you alluded to. I mean, that's the thing that we go in, fix and flip and just keep rolling dollars strategically, strategically hold, um, single families when they make sense. But for us, it's primarily just generate the dollars and focus on commercial, put in our dollars and cents to work, to employ cash flowing commercial assets or commercial assets in which we can reposition one way or another, either for physical, through a physical improvement, um, through a, a management or restructure, through some component of value add to be able to put, to be able to reposition the asset and keep it. And so the intent on this retail, which is under sale, under contract is to do a 1031 to buy another asset. Awesome. Any advice you got for somebody who's just getting started? Ooh, just getting started. I mean, continue to take action, continue to move. Uh, my, you know, if I, if I was going to advise my younger self, it would be go straight into commercial. The numbers are all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the efficiency associated with this, as you know, part of the single family 
and I got a lot of them, so I'm not knocking it. It's, it can be very positive, but part of it is, you know, there's, there's some brain damage associated with just all, <laughs> all, all the stuff that one has to deal with. You know, again, when you, when you go, I got, you can, if, if 10 houses equals one commercial asset, I'm just going, I'll just take the commercial assets. Yeah. It's more efficient. Just, it's just easier. You deal with professional, you know, I'm dealing with some, some things we self-manage, but some things where there's just little too many moving pieces. I, we go external. I'm dealing with very professional property managers for counter that with the single family side, that world does not look the same. No, for sure. You mentioned, uh, taking on other, other investor capital yeah. is so is, is syndication something you've, you've looked into. Yes. I, I'm intimately familiar with syndication and, in in my exposure with other folks who syndicate. Sure. So yes, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that'll be where we're headed. That is where we're headed this year is to continue to, to grow our commercial asset base and move to move, move upstream, if you will. So bigger dollar deals sure. and to bring on folks where they're to, when it makes sense. And, and I think part of that has been my uh, slightly, my reluctance to bring folks on is, and, and will always continue to be. So is I'm not going to, Unlike, I'm not knocking syndicators here. Everybody's got a little different business model, but I don't need to make a living by putting a deal together and feeing someone. Does that make sense? My my goal has always been to employ my dollars and cents in an efficient fashion to generate cash flow, to generate passive income. So the assets we would bring on now or in the future with somebody else, it's it's I've got to be on board for my ability to go. I with or without you, I'd want to buy that deal. Sure. Right. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, there, there is a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of both of it in the marketplace, obviously. I mean, there's, there's syndicators that are buying deals and living off of asset or like acquisition fees. Sure. And, and, you know, that's kind of their way into the game. And then right. there's the other syndicator who wants to buy bigger deals and just can't do it with just their money. Right. We, we, in our projects, we invest a ton of our own money. I mean, right. And it just, and it makes us more money paired with their money than it would just to put Correct. on a much smaller asset because of all the operational efficiencies and of, of the much bigger deal. No, but, you're, you're right on. And, and, and neither one is, um, neither one's wrong. I just know from my comfort level, every time I talk to a syndicator and, you know, and ask them how much money are you putting into the deal. And if I ever hear none or 1% of the total capital, I just, for me, it does not. And everybody's different and that's okay. Just doesn't give me a comfort level for me to go. I want to be part of that. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Now we, 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 uh, I think we put in as a general partnership team, I think we put in like 15% in our yeah. last two projects. Yeah. Well, is... you, I mean, you do typically, you typically see 10 to 20% is pretty, is pretty, you know, call it old school commonplace, right? Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, you've got real risk on the line. You've got real dollars. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, one thing I also want to ask everybody about in our current environment, and again, yeah. I, I hate, you know, I have, I hate my podcast airs two months after, uh, after like we recorded oh, sure. such a backlog. Yeah. So we'll know if you're right or wrong by the time it comes. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I, I, uh, it's funny. I interviewed a bunch of people during like when COVID was just kicking off and they had oh, all yeah. these crazy predictions. And then like, by the time the episode aired, it was like totally irrelevant and moot points, right. you know, right. but you know, we did, we are seeing the fed hike rates and it, it's 
causing kind of, you know, it's, it's definitely impacting our lending. Um, Correct. What do you think the broader impact on the, on the, the housing market will be? Um, do you think we're so low in supply that it'll just keep on trucking for a few years? Or do you think that this will have some devastating, what, what do you see? Yeah, that's What's a, your economic uh, forecast. It's a great question. I think it, the, my answer is contingent upon how, how high they continue to move rates. Because right now, the supply and demand factor, at least in my backyard, is so far off whack that mm-hmm. you know this, this movement from what was on a, on a consumer 30-year fixed rate that was in the three or three and a quarter in December is now right at five, but that it is not, there's, there's no impact on what's, what's transacting. There's just so much activity from a from a supply demand factor standpoint, so I think it's got a lot of legs. Um, our resale inventory is only about thirty percent, so in my backyard only about thirty percent of all the homes available for sale are, are resale single family homes. So that tells you seventy percent new construction, and, and new construction prices continue to increase. Right, they continue to increase because all the inputs continue to increase. Right. So it tells me, you know. If you're new, if 70% of all inventory available for sales, new construction, and those prices have nowhere to run, but higher because all their inputs is just a function of inputs, right? Sure. To me, that, that says the resale prices are going to continue to go and the supply and demand factor, just because there isn't much for sale, they're going to continue to run higher. So I think prices still run. I think, I think even if interest rates find their way to six or 7% this year, which would not be six is not out of the question seven might push it i think there's still run room to run over the next over the next couple of years awesome love hearing that yeah. um real quick i want to hop over to our radio round to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better yeah um so first question is what's your favorite book my favorite book it, it's a book that changed my life i was uh, probably 22 years old when i read it the millionaire mind by dr thomas j stanley Okay. He wrote, he wrote the millionaire next door, which is his most popular one, yep. uh, but the millionaire mind, incredible book. Okay. I've read the millionaire next door. I've yeah. never even heard of the millionaire mind. Yeah. All about how to, how to think, how to walk, how to act, how to talk all, all what's, what's on the inside of the millionaire's mind. Awesome. I'll have yeah. to check it out. I have to add it to the, the audible yeah. list. Um, next question is what's your favorite quote? My favorite quote, um, try not to be a man of success, but a man of value. Ben Franklin said it. I love it. That's a great one. That's a, um, that is a, a struggle amongst high achievers, right? I, I first noticed that climbing the corporate ladder in corporate America, you know, uh, at, you know, when I was early on, I, I, I admired and looked up to the, the Uber successful people. And sure. then like, as I, as I, climb the ladder and interacted with them more i'm like i'm like i, I began to think very low <laughs> you know what i yeah, mean right. yeah. and uh stopped assigning value to people based on their success in life and then as you become more successful you think well how do i become more of a you know a better father a better family man a better right you know member of the community um no you're you're absolutely right but at the same time I think one becomes, you know, from a business perspective, one becomes successful by being of value. So from when I was, when I was in the, the position to serve folks, you know, as, as a real estate agent, buying and selling homes is literally what's in it, what can I get for them? How do I serve them? Because mm-hmm. if we serve others properly, we always get what we want or what we need. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's the old uh, Zig Ziglar. You can get everything in one you want in life if you help that's enough a, other people get what they want. That's exactly right. Um, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Favorite thing to do outside of work is is hang out with my kids and all their activities. I've got three kids, 16, 14, and 12, and they're all in sports. And so I just love being love being at every single thing that they do, whatever it is that they do. Awesome. Awesome. I have a, a two and a half year old and a one year old. And, okay. Uh, and we want, we want another one, but we're going to wait a couple of years. So yeah. I'm, I'm about a decade behind yeah. your, your trajectory right there. It's, um, you know, my perspective has changed from where you are to where I am. Cause right now I'm, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel to go, yeah. this thing, this thing's almost over. I mean, my kids will, you know, at some point they're not going to play X anymore. Right. Yeah. And so I'm going, I got a, I only got a handful of years left. So there isn't, I, I don't miss a single thing. See, I see everything. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Uh, it's great that, that this lifestyle that we've chosen in real estate investing allows us to do those things. You know? You're exactly right. Yes. Um, it's so a privilege. Yep. Good deal. Hey, by the way, that runs right in line with uh, Dr. Stammen's the book I mentioned, the millionaire mind. He said, uh, vocation, vocation, vocation. The number one attributing factor to one's financial success in life is their, is their choice of vocation. Yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. Um, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Find out more about you. Well, you can find me in a couple places. You can find me on Facebook, Neil Timmons. You can find me on LinkedIn, same spot. I'll make sure I get you the link. Um, my website, legacy impact investors. Um, and then I, I, you know, I host a, I host a podcast as well. Real grit podcast. And so you can find it everywhere. Podcasts are disseminated. Awesome. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining the show. I really enjoyed getting to know you and uh, look forward to keeping up with you on your journey. Likewise. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.